As you're finding your seats, we wanted to let you know we do have nursery available for, um, uh, for the young ones. Um, as I've mentioned before, it's not obligatory, but um, it is an option. And uh, if you wish to take advantage of it, I know that uh, our ladies in the nursery would love to spend some time with your little ones. So as they're heading out, and as we are um, settling in, I would encourage you guys to open up your Bibles to uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, and we're going to see a wonderful Christmas text, right? Because 2 Corinthians has always been known as, as a Christmas uh, book, right? Probably not. But that's okay. The nice thing about uh, Christmas season is that uh, we can find the Christmas message all through the Old and New Testament. Um, in Sunday school, we were, we were talking a little bit about the thread theory, and uh, I was inaccurate in my assessment. I thought the thread that Brother Mike was teaching was the idea that there's a, there's a scarlet thread that weaves all the way through the old, all the way through, through the new, right to Revelation, so that you have that continuity of Scripture. But you were talking about the thread that, you know, if you pull one piece of thread, it, it'll unravel the whole thing. And we know that you can't, there isn't a loose thread in Scripture anyway, um, and so there's no way you can unravel it. All you can do is, is begin to understand the complexities that is the Word of God. As the layer upon layer of God's Word, um, the more we immerse ourselves in His Word, the more these layers come out, the more we're exposed to the mercy and grace of God, the more we're better under, able to understand it. And you know, as we get older and as we experience more and more in life, I find, I don't know about you guys, but I find that Scripture has greater and greater meaning for my life than I ever imagined when I was in my teens or early adulthood. That's not to say that as an early adult we can't understand this, but I do feel there's value in studying the words of God and, uh, and being able to apply them to our lives. So this morning we're going to be continuing in our, in our series on holiness. Um, if you notice, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you can't find one in front of you in the pews, um, I do print uh, some of the scriptures out that we go through, um, and I put them in your bulletin so you do have that. And so you'll see 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. I've entitled this sermon, Whoville Holiness. And I know some of my Dr. Seuss enthusiasts out there are saying, why in the world are you bringing that in this? We'll find out in a moment. Um, but as we move through this, I want to, uh, I really want to impress upon you again, just the utter, complete holiness of God. And I, and I know in a series like this, you know, how many times can you talk about the holiness before we get the picture, right? We understand God is holy and we're not. We understand that he is so much more holy than we are to the point that we don't even understand what holiness really is. We can only grasp just the fringes, the edges of what holiness begins to mean. Because as far as we know, holiness means otherness. It means alien. It means something foreign to our comprehension. And we've talked the last few weeks how the fact that God was so holy that, that um, the only way that he can reveal himself uh, in a way that we would even begin to, to slightly comprehend was by sending his son, sending himself to live amongst us so we might be able to behold the holiness of God made flesh. And so that's part of the reason why in this Christmas time we look at this kind of message because the holiness of God demanded that God require a sacrifice. And God knew the only sacrifice that was capable of bringing us into his presence for all eternity was that of himself on the cross. And so He was the His holiness demanded that he sacrifice for us. But then the other side of that is God's love was so over so overabounding that he wanted to go to the cross. He needed to be able to do that with us. So this morning, we ask ourselves, in light of all that, how do we become holy? I mean, doesn't Scripture tell us to, to 
be ye holy for I am holy? Does it, aren't we required to do that? I was reading in the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 12, verse 14. If you want to look it up, you don't have to. Um, and in, um, uh, in one of the translations, it says, Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The idea that the pursuit of holiness, that pursuit of sanctification, that pursuit of God's holiness should be the first and foremost thing in our brain. So then we come back to that question, how do we become holy? How can we become holy and acceptable to God? How can we allow ourselves to be able to come into his presence, even even deign to look upon his countenance or his visage? Well, that's a difficult question, isn't it? You see, in the great exchange, and this is something you guys have to really get down. Before we ever go any further in this message, we need to understand this, that in this great exchange between us and God, the only thing that we're able to bring to that table of discussion is the sin that makes our salvation necessary. The only thing we bring into the discussion is our sin. The only thing that we bring to the table is our brokenness. You see, in this discussion that we're talking about of what it means to be holy and how God makes us holy, the clear and often articulated truth that we find within Scripture is that holiness in and of ourselves is an impossibility. It doesn't matter how hard we try. It doesn't matter how hard we work. It doesn't matter how disciplined we are in our lives. It doesn't matter what we do or say. We can honestly know this and we can find this teaching in Scriptures that we will never be holy enough, ever. And I think Scripture even goes a step further and teaches that if we spend all of our time on doing those good deeds, but not having the right motive, even that is considered unholy to God. You see, and this is the thing I think that is important as we begin this discussion this morning, as we continue the longer discussion of what holiness really is, what God's holiness is, is that we have to look at the internal, right? We've looked at God. We've looked at some of those other things. Now we have to look at ourselves because in this question, when we ask, how do we become holy? The first thing we need to ask ourselves is, who are we? The next question we need to ask is, whose are we? So when I, when, I, when I title this sermon, The Whoville of Holiness, I'm telling you, who are we and whose are we? Those are two very important questions that we need to answer. You see, when we look at our behavior, we look at the way I'm, we're acting, and this is a tendency that all men can has. This is a tendency that whether you're Christian or not, all of us have a desire to, to be seen well of in our community, in our peer groups, in our spheres of influence. And we, look, we oftentimes can look at our behavior and we can say, well, I'm acting according to the Scriptures and I'm doing what, what Scriptures say is holy. And, and we say that our behavior is, is mostly in the right place. We can even say that without Jesus Christ in our heart, our behavior will never be where God wants us to. Whenever we try to use our behavior and our right actions, and I've heard people say this to me, you know, I've, I've talked to them and tried to witness with them. In fact, just this week, I was witnessing to a fellow that I had never met before. Um, we just happened to be sitting in the same, uh, same location in a coffee shop, and I'm like, and, and he asked me, because he saw me reading the Bible, and, and he asked me a little bit about what I was studying, and I was sharing with him, and I just, and he said, well, you know, I'm a good person. You know, I've never lied, never stolen in my business life. I've always treated my customers and my people with professionalism and, and, and honesty and courtesy, but he never never actually went out and said he never lied. He just said he never lied in his public 
business life, right? So he's trying to reserve that little bit. Like he said, that's good enough, right? He goes, I'm a good man. I said, well, we know that being a good man is not good enough. Because even in our goodness, we're not nearly what God wants us to. And actually, if you think about this, and this is where it gets really dangerous, when we start doing these good behaviors and we start acting like we think God wants us to without having that heart relationship with Jesus Christ, we're actually doing God a disservice. See, we're trying to leverage our good works, our behavior, to get God what we want to do for us, right? It's almost as though we're trying to manipulate him. Have you ever had that discussion with God? God, I will, I will do X if you'll do Y. I remember I did that once many, many years ago. I was living hand to mouth and, and really struggling. I was in South Florida. I was working as a deli manager in Florida, and uh, I was really trying to, trying to make ends meet. It was getting close to Christmas time. I had presents to be given. My boss had promised me a raise. You know where those promises go, right? You're going to get this raise, and you're going to get this raise. And, and so I worked really hard to try to prove that I need to have the raise. And my boss says, well, not this month. We can't quite do it, but next month we're going to give you that raise. And so, and so like four months into this, I promised to give you a raise thing, and I'm still really working hard for it. I finally turned and I said, I'm going to pull the big guns out, right? I'm going to start praying. Instead of praying the right way, I'm saying, God, you know, if, if, you will, if you'll give me this raise, I'll give you my first paycheck in tithe. Yeah, I was, I was setting myself up for failure, right? Yeah. Well, I need to say I didn't get the raise. I ended up getting a different job. But the truth is that we can't manipulate God. He doesn't need anything from us. He wants things from us, but he doesn't need it from us. And, we, and if we try to manipulate him by our, by our quote-unquote obedience or our doing his, what we think his will is, just to be able to get what we want, we find that that is not where God wants to be. And that actually puts ourselves up on a pedestal higher than God. And that's not where God wants us. Now, Paul is dealing with many of these things and issues in Corinthians, in the Corinthian church. We know that First and Second Corinthians is a tough two books. We also are fairly certain that there were actually four letters written to the Corinthians by Paul, and of which we only have two. Some of the other discussions that we have are alluded to in 2 Corinthians as well as the end of 1 Corinthians, and we get the idea that there was a huge discussion and fighting that was going on between Paul and the church there in Corinth, and they were obviously not doing what God wanted them to do, and Paul was trying to call them out. So in that discussion, Paul is now coming into chapter 3, and he's bringing out a a, a discussion that needs to happen. Now, in light of this, I want you guys to understand what we're going to read here in a moment. It's it's all in the context of of talking to a church that's dysfunctional in families that are not doing well. Paul is trying to build them up. But there's something also really amazing. We talked about in Sunday school layers in Scripture, you know, how sometimes you have to go a little bit deeper to see things the way in more clarity. We have to understand not only what's being written, but who wrote it. Now, those of you that were in our Sunday school classes last summer, we had an opportunity to look at Paul the man as we began to look what his motivations were. You might remember that we discussed that Paul was a very zealous individual. He was an individual that really aligned himself heavily with the the Mosaic time period. He really loved Moses, and he loved the story of Phinehas, the one that was zealous enough to run through the camp of Israel to purge the the, the paganists and and to get that out of there. And And he really looked at himself as being that new Phinehas, this final discussion of Moses into the modern, in his time, modern world. And so all that uh, couched in the same respect that, that Paul was like this rabbi beyond excellence, okay? He makes some of the greatest theologian minds that we have today look like kindergartners. 
And the way he's able to layer in discussions in ways that I, I still, I've read Paul most of my adult life, and I'm still finding things new. And so this week, as I was reading this, all of a sudden I got this tweak in the back of my mind. You guys know I'm a bit of a mystic. I like to look for connections throughout all of Scripture. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, I know he's having discussion about Moses, but, but what discussion is he really having? And then I began to, I took uh, Exodus 34, and I put it next to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I started to read one, and then I read the other, and then I read the other one, and then I went back to 2 Corinthians, and then I went back to Exodus, and I'm looking at the two of those, and it occurred to me that what we're reading in chapter 3, one, verses 1 through 18, is an extended commentary from one of the greatest theologians that's ever walked this earth, as he expounds and expands Exodus 34 in a way to us, for us, that we're able to apply it to our lives, not only in the days of the Corinthians, but also today. And I thought, wow, that's a powerful thing as we start to look at this is what Paul is trying to do. And he starts off in verse, in verse 1. He says, we are beginning to commend ourselves again. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do you need some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. And being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not in ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. And so he begins to lay the foundation for the discussion that's going to come on. And as soon as he throws out tables of stone, every Jew on the planet is going to say, oh, my ears are perking up. What is he going to say? How is he going to bring this out? Is he going to discuss the law? Is he going to discuss Moses? How are we going to bring this out? But look what he says. He starts off right in the beginning. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves? You know, the word there that he's using doesn't really mean, it means commend, but not in the same English way that we're using it nowadays. He's talking about this as, is the word actually means to stand together. It's, a, it's an opportunity for someone to come alongside. Back in those days, they didn't have the internet, obviously. They didn't have all the ways that they can communicate. Nowadays, you want to know somebody. Like, we got people in the congregation, they're professionals. And you want to know more about their professional life? The easiest way, rather than calling them and talking to them, is just to Google them, right? How many times have you Googled people in the congregation? You probably ought not do that. I don't know if that's a good thing. You may actually learn things you don't want to know. Because um, nowadays in our social age, it's amazing what you can find out on the internet. And you know, kids, I just want you to know, everything you put on the internet, it doesn't go away. It's not like there's a magic eraser out there that you can scrub that stuff off. And I watch what you kids put on, internet, on the internet sometimes. And I'm thinking, hmm, that's going to come back to haunt you when you're 40. I'm just telling you. So um, I'm just thankful I didn't have that when I was a kid. Because, yeah, that would have been bad. Um, but all that being said, um, you notice that... Uh, that they needed to have these letters of introduction, and oftentimes, when a new person would come into a community, they would bring letters of introduction. And I got to thinking about this, you know, a letter of introduction is only as good as the person writing it. You know, if, if, if we brought somebody into this congregation, and we had little Delaney who sits in the back with her mom, if she were to write a letter of introduction for one of you guys, and it would be a nice and colorful, I'm sure she used markers, and she'd probably have some pretty stickers in there, maybe a unicorn or two thrown in, a nice piece of artwork, and she would give you this nice letter of recommendation anybody in this congregation would look at that and say, oh, because we know Delaney. We love Delaney, right? We want, to, we, want to, we want to take that recommendation. If she were to say that this person's a good guy, I really like him, or a good gal, they're really good friends, and we would take that. But if you take Delaney's recommendation down to the next church down the road that doesn't know Delaney, is it going to mean anything? No, of course not. They're going to look at the childlike handwriting, and they're going to say, really, this is the best you got? I don't think I'm going to let you work here. 
Well, on the day in Paul, the same thing together. Letters of recommendation were needed. And when somebody came into a new community and they had a letter of recommendation, they had to have somebody of quality behind it. And so Paul's trying to basically say, he's laying out this this experience, he's saying to them, the letter of recommendation that you're asking for, who stands next to us, is not you, it's not the apostles in Jerusalem, it's not all these other individuals that are mere men, the people, that the one that stands beside us, that gives us the greatest recommendation, is Jesus Christ. He's the one that wrote on your hearts and mine how we are going to be carrying forth the ministry of Christ. Christ to you. Look what it said in verse 3, being manifest that you are a letter of Christ. Now, you can just, I tell you, there are preachers that can just preach that passage, that portion of a passage for the, for the remainder of the day. We can just sit here all day long and talk about how we are the letter of Christ to a world that desperately needs it. And I wonder, is that letter drawn in crayon and marker with little fuzzy stickers of our unicorns? Or is it a serious treaty that's going to get people to listen? I think sometimes our letter is a little torn and frayed, and we don't bring Christ out like we need to the world. But look what it says. It says that this letter is not written with ink. It's it's written by the Spirit of the living God. I love when Paul breaks out these words, the Spirit of the living God. It just brings everything back into perspective. And then he talks about not on tablets of stone, but tablets of the human hearts, because he wants to know where we're at. So not only is he invoking Moses, but he's also bringing Jeremiah chapter 31 in. We've already preached about that a few weeks ago. The idea that Jeremiah 31 is that new covenant that he promised was going to be written on the hearts of mankind. So Paul is bringing all this in as the excellent rabbi that he was and being able to apply it to the situation that's at hand. And he says in verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ towards God, Not that we are adequate in the New American Standard, not that we are adequate in ourselves, but to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. When you look at that word adequacy, I I hate that. You know, I was looking at the different translations, and none of this, none of them really do this word justice. The word in in, in Greek is is hikenu, hikenu. It means to reach out with the hand, right? And I was trying to figure out how that applies to what God is trying to say here with, to us and how we are adequate. Not that we are able to reach out with our hand, but that God is able to reach out with his hand to us. And that's the key that we want to look at here. When we look at this acceptability, this adequateness, we are only acceptable to God because God is giving us his acceptability, his acceptedness. And that's kind of a beautiful thing. Because we start thinking about this, and I, you know, I, I like to do thought experiments when I'm reading through Scripture. I like to try to imagine what, this, what God is trying to say in a larger context. And I started thinking about this, and, and I think that if you look at uh, Scriptures where it says, you know, God is, is being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even that when we were dead in our trespasses, you get that idea that that no matter where we are, even when we were dead in sin, Christ still loved us. He still was willing to die for us. You know, I heard a preacher this week say that dead people don't make good life choices. I thought about that. That's absolutely correct. Dead people don't make good choices in life. And we don't need to be dead. We need to be alive in Christ. And so when I was dead, I made poor choices. When I was not alive in Christ and his, his spirit was not within me, there's no way that I can make proper choices in life. But we need to get past this idea that, that God loves us because of what we do. And that his love for us is somehow predicated upon our internal goodness. 
You see, his great love, his abundance of mercy, which, by which he loves us, is present even while we were sinners, dead in our sin. And, this is that, and that's just the beginning. Now, a lot of times as Christians, because we're now in the infancy, infancy of, of the universe, right? We're just beginning this eternity thing. We're just starting the first steps, like baby steps, walking with God as we learn to hold his hand through this time. And at some point in the future... All of us are going to step out of this body in this mortal, in this mortal plane and step into heaven and we're going to stand before Jesus and we're going to look at him with new, fresh, and perfect eyes as we glance towards eternity. Have you ever thought what heaven was going to be like? Have you ever just spent a little bit of time just cogitating on that? You know, when I was younger and I was a little more uh, adventurous, I used to think and imagine the ability to be able to, to just explore the entire universe. I, I imagined surfing on the rings of Saturn and, and spending some time lounging on the sun itself, you know, and be able to go off and find the worlds and the different amazing things that God has created in this vast universe that gets bigger and bigger the more we understand it. But I think maybe that's even thinking way, way too small. I mean, think about this. God's goodness is so vast. His goodness is so deep. It's so profoundly infinite that it's going to take an eternity plus for him to lavish his love upon us and to show us why he purchased us for himself. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty powerful. Ladies, would you like your husband's to spend the rest of their life lavishing their praise and love upon you every second of every minute of every day? Carol says yes. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? And as one of our oldest uh, married couples in the church, I can, I can tell you now, I know Gary, and he probably has done that a good period of time. Gary's a good husband. But I tell you, that's a pretty powerful thing. Now imagine as good as we can do it, God doing it even better. You see, that's what eternity is all about, is him spending all of eternity showing us just how much he loves us as we, in turn, get to show him how much we love him. That is what, that's what this is all about. And so we see this in verse 7. He continues on. He says, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved upon stones, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently upon the face of Moses because the glory of his face was fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? So we see here that Paul is bringing these if-then statements. He's trying to show us the, he's moving in a standard way that rabbis did this. He would go from the lesser to the greater. He's showing us that, that this was okay, but it wasn't nearly as good as what it's going to be. He's showing us the small in contrast with the large. And he says that here, how can this, the, these letters engraved by stone, he's invoking Moses, he's invoking the tablets, he's talking about that moment in time where Moses went up and spent time with God. He was spent so much time in the presence of a holy God, the holiness that was so powerful amongst him that even Moses spending time with him caused himself to, to absorb and reflect the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. And he came down from the mountain and his face was shining, his clothes were shining, everything about him was glowing and he couldn't he couldn't even stand in front of the people without them saying we can't handle this Moses you need to put a veil over your face please there needs to be a separation it's too much and look what Paul says about that he says that glory and the, and the thing about that is Moses didn't have to wear that veil the rest of his life that the, the further he was away from 
the presence of God, the more that glory faded. Now, there's, a, there's something you can preach right there. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you opened up God's Word? When was the last time you spent more than a, a passing moment with God? When was the last time you did more than just read the daily bread verse, you know? Think about it. The longer we spend away from the presence of God, the more that reflected glory fades. And that's what, Moses is, that's what Paul is saying about Moses right here. And he says, how can that, as glorious as it was, beginning to fade, how can, will the ministry of the Spirit be so much more when it comes to that word glory? That word glory in, in, in Greek is doxa. You know, and it's used multiple times. And I want you guys to think about this. When, you know, I know some of you say, well, why are you bringing up Greek again? We don't speak Greek. We're English. We're American. I know that. I get that. But you have to understand that the Bible was written originally in Greek, right? And we've had translators, translators working tirelessly to give us the absolute best translation. But the one thing that I notice when I'm going through Scripture and passages like this is when I see words repeated, that is the Holy Spirit saying, pay attention. And when you see a word repeated, you need to, so what is being repeated? Why is it being repeated? How is this, this uh, going to impact me? And the word glory is repeated over and over and over again in this passage. Because Paul wants that to sink in. He wants us to think about the glory. Not the glory that fades, but the glory that's incorruptible. The glory that, that comes only from having God within our heart and soul as we live out the fulfilled prophecy of Jeremiah 31.31. 31. When he says that in the last days, I will write my law on their hearts. They will know me. They will call me their God. I will call them my people. That is a powerful prophecy. And when Jesus stood up and he said, this is the new covenant that's going to be ratified with my blood. These apostles were living in that time. They knew they were living in the days of Jeremiah 31, 31. And we are too. And we see that now, that if the ministry of death, as he said, was not good enough, it was the ones that was given on letters, and you say, well, what does that mean, ministry of death? Are you saying the law was death? Is Paul like an antinomian? Is he against the law? Is he against the, 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 the first ten commandments that were in the, in the first five books of the, of the Old Testament? What is Paul actually saying? Paul's basically saying exactly what we have preached for a number of years. And that is that the law does one thing really well. It highlights the fact that we can't keep it. And that we are sinners. And that no matter how good we are, we can never measure up to the love of God. And so Paul was saying that if you follow just the law, just the law, and you do your best to be externally clean, but you never deal with anything that's within your heart, you never take that moment to move beyond the physical, you never move from the mental right here into the heart, you never deal with that heart problem that's in your soul, no matter how good you look on the outside, you're going to step into glory, you're going to stand in front of Jesus Christ, and you're going to say, I want in. He's going to say, I don't know you. The thing is, we don't preach nearly enough about hell in the pulpit. Not in this one, not in any of them. Truth is, heaven is a beautiful place. We've talked about that. But the other opposite, the opposite of that, hell, that's not a place you want to send your worst enemy. I would never want to see anyone go to hell. I hear these phrases on television and popular media as people just passively throw that word out. Go to... I'm thinking, are you, are you listening to yourself? Maybe you just don't know what you're talking about. You don't really want anybody to go there. 
Paul's talking about that here. He says, there's two directions here. There's the glory that is, the, un, the uncorruptible glory that is God, and then there is the opposite side. That is death, destruction, and hell. Verse 9, he goes on, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, has doxa, has glory, how much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory? What he's saying is once we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, once we have that power flooding through our body, not our power, not our righteousness, nothing of ourselves, once we have that energy source that's now dwelling within us, we can now move and everything we do begins to have the kind of fruit that only the glory of God dwelling within us can bear. For indeed, verse 10, for indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Basically, there's no way that our glory can ever compete with the glory of God. Look at verse 12. And I know we're marching through this, and I appreciate your your patience as we continue to work at this. But it says in verse 12, it says, therefore, having such a hope. I was in in the store not not too long ago in Safeway in, um, uh, in Soldatna. I was um, buying a uh, soda, and I heard this person come in right in front of me. They were, they were just there, and the cashier did one of these things, hi, how you doing? And she goes, horrible. And then the cashier was like caught like a deer in the headlights. What do I say now? And then the woman saw the silence as an opening to continue to share her story. It's amazing how people continually want to share their story. And she went on to say how she's pulling her kid out of school, she's leaving the state, she has no hope, the state is horrible. And they, she was just listing all the pain and anguish and sadness that is that has dwelt within her in, in, a, in a three and a half minute spiel that just left you like going, how do I respond to that? I had the opportunity before she left to hand her my card, and I said, if you'd like to talk, I'd love to, I'd love to talk to you. But she didn't really want to spend time to talk, and she took the card and left. I don't know her name, but I know Jesus does. But this is the world we live in, a world that has no hope. They have no way to move beyond themselves. Therefore, having such a hope, we have that hope. We use great boldness in our speech. And we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. So he's coming down from the mountain. And you know, the most amazing thing is, he comes down, he's shining, he's got the tablets, he's hanging out with the, he's wanting to hang out with everybody. And even his brother, Aaron, was afraid to come near him. There was this degree of separation. They didn't want to come close. They were scared. But look at this. We don't have to worry about that. There is a boldness that the Holy Spirit gives within us that allows us to be able to come into the presence. So we're not like Moses, who has to veil ourselves so that we can be amongst the commoners. We don't have to do that. The glory that's within us is so powerful and so amazing that we can stand it, we can handle it, and then we can use this glory that God has given us to be his hands and feet into a world that needs it. Verse 14 says, But their minds were hardened, they being the the children of Israel, much like the world around us today. And until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. It's only when we come to Jesus Christ that we're able to truly understand more of the mysteries of the New and Old Testament. 
It always makes me chuckle when I read, especially this time of year, Christmas time always brings out the crazies in the, in the theological world. And there's a lot of individuals out there that have all these highfalutin degrees from all these wonderful seminaries like Harvard and, and beyond, and they, they know the word because they've studied it, right? It's their career. They've made a living at this, but they don't know the author that wrote the words. They just know the words. And they'll get into the, all these really weird esoteric discussions, but what it really comes down to, they don't really know Jesus Christ. They don't know the author. And so the veil is still over their eyes, and until the Christ removes that veil, they'll never understand it. The word of God is foolishness to those without the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, but, or sorry, verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away, and now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is life. Freedom. Freedom. In America, that's one of our biggest virtues. It's one of our biggest things that we, we prize above all others. Since my time here in Alaska, I've noticed that there is something unique about the Alaskan spirit. The idea of self-sufficiency, liberty, the desire to be away from um, any kind of oversight and control. And if you don't agree with me, just drive out in Nikiski, you'll see them. They're all out there. It's like every crazy, every unique individual who is seeking to be independent and, and away from government control, they just, they send a migrate into these places where there is little government oversight, right? I honestly say, if I was going to buy some property in Alaska, and we've looked at several pieces, I'm telling you, Nikiski is the one, I, that's, that's where I want to go. Because that's to me, is I think the best place on earth to go. Not only is it beautiful and amazing, but there's so little government there. I love it. I love it. They're giving me the opportunity to be individualistic. But the reality is, it doesn't matter how far away from governments I go, I can be on a desert island in the middle of nowhere, owned by nobody, run by nobody, living all by myself, and I still would not have liberty and freedom if it weren't for Jesus Christ in my soul. Because only Jesus brings liberty. Everybody else that doesn't have Jesus is enslaved to the sin nature within their soul, and they cannot understand it without him. Now the Spirit of the Lord... Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Verse 18. And I tell you, if you underline anything, I encourage you to underline verse 18, memorize it, because this is a powerful passage. But we all, and this is us, right? Every person in here that calls Christ their own, everybody in here that's accepted Jesus as their Savior, everybody in here that's repented of their sin, have begged forgiveness, who believes that he died on the cross, believes that God raised him from the dead, and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father as, as, as our propitiator for, for sin, the one that, 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 that makes a way for us before God. Everybody in here that looks upon the face of God without being destroyed and calls him Father, we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So with unveiled faces, you and I now have our eyes fixed on Jesus. We, are, we have the opportunity to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way we've never understood it before. And in the beholding of Jesus, we are in the process of becoming transformed. We are in the process of becoming sanctified, that progressive sanctification as we, as we draw in more and more of the holiness. But you know what that means? That's, that's a nice esoteric thing. That's a nice, that's a nice Sunday school answer, right? We can say that in Sunday school and everybody's going to think, oh, you're just so spiritual, right? But what does that really mean? 
What does it mean that, that we have our that we have that we're being transformed into the same image of Christ? Now we can in our mind we think about that. And if you if you're a science fiction fan, you're probably thinking of whatever superhero or whatever that has the ability to transform into another person on the outward appearance. But that's not what we're talking about. And how does this happen? Obviously, we don't have special powers. Obviously, we're not going to turn into we're sitting around here and we're all now Jesus. You know, it's not going to be like that. What Jesus is trying to tell us through this passage is that this, that this sanctification that he is allowing us to do is played out every single day in our life. How many times have we thought to ourselves when something bad happens to us, why me? How many times have we thought to ourselves, why is this happening now of all times? Do we ever do that when good things happen? Does anybody ever say, why me, when something really good happens? No, we don't do that. We always say, why me, when bad stuff happens, you know? But you think about this. Good, bad, and indifferent, every single experience we have, every relationship we engage in, every friendship that we have, every experience that God allows to come into our path, all of those things work towards the sanctification and holiness of ourselves. Whether the relationship is good or bad. Rather than thinking to ourselves, why is this happening to me? And I mentioned this in Sunday school. We should say the, we should say the opposite of this. Is what does God want me to learn from this, right? And that goes back to our core questions. Who are we and whose are we? Once we know whose we are, we can begin to understand who we are. I know who I am. I'm Christ's man. Wherever he sends me, I'll go. Whatever he tells me to say, I'll say. No holds barred. As much as I love my family, there is nothing that I wouldn't sacrifice if, my, if Christ told me to. I can say that now, but he hasn't put a knife in my hand. He hasn't had my son bound in front of me and asked me to kill him like he did to Abraham. But I want to say and I want to believe in my heart of hearts that whenever God asked me, I would do. I believe that Paul was that kind of man. The transformation, the progressive sanctification, we are being called to draw our self closer to him so that we step out of this life and into the next, we will be a smooth transition from Glory to glory. As one degree of glory is attained, the next is yet to be acquired. Jesus is the image of the holiness of God, so that by beholding Jesus, we are being transformed into his likeness. And that's beautiful. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we see our Savior, we are transformed from one degree of holiness to the next. And that's where we are this morning. And I'm just going to leave it to you guys. This is a discussion that you're going to have to have with your creator. This is something you need to ask yourself. Where are you in that progressive sanctification? Some of you are well on the path. And some of you have had multiple opportunities for discipleship and avenues of discussion and study. Some of you have spent years perfecting um, your Christianity knowing that you'll never be perfect till you step out of this body. Some of you are well on that path. Some of the rest of us, and I point myself in this, I'm not even close. I make mistakes every day, and I let my God down every day. I say that I'm his man and that I'll do whatever he wants me to, but as soon as I say those words, my mind starts ticking off, well, accept this, and accept this, and accept this. And if this happens, I won't do this. Because I'm looking for loopholes. Because I'm a sinner because I don't deserve Jesus, not even a little bit.
Fortunately for me, he didn't ask my opinion when he went to the cross. And so if you're like me, and if you're sitting out there and you have yet to even, um, uh, even approach Jesus to begin with, or if you're like me and, you, and you're still struggling understanding where you fit in God's, in God's calling and you know he's got something for you but you're not exactly sure what and you know he's brought you here for now for this time but you're wondering what is God really trying to teach you in this? Maybe this morning you need to answer those questions. The best way to do that is to come down front. Every week, every week, we put this call out. Every week I ask, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, please come down front and you know the words. You can almost recite them. And somebody in here will be more than happy to come and show you in God's word how to become a Christian. If you want to be saved, I can guarantee you there are people here that will show you how to do that. It breaks my heart every Sunday we close the service. And we don't have anybody that actually asks that. And maybe the altar call is going away. Maybe the day that we, that we open up the altar like this and ask people to come is, 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 is going to be relegated to a bygone age. And maybe, maybe as pastors in the, coming, in the coming years, we'll just stop doing it altogether. I don't know. As for me, I, feel hard, I have a hard time not doing it. Because as I said in the beginning of this sermon, I don't want to see any of you go to hell. So I encourage you, if you don't know anybody, if you don't know Jesus, please come down front. And don't let a simple thing like being embarrassed stop you. Don't let a simple thing keep you from knowing Jesus as your Savior. For the rest of us that are called, I hope that in the course of this discussion about His holiness, that you were touched. I hope that the Holy Spirit spoke with you. I hope that He showed you areas in your life that you have yet to perfect. And whether you're three or 103, that you still have things you need to do as long as you're drawing breath to draw closer to him. So this morning, I'm going to open up the altar and I'm going to ask you guys to come. And as I bow my heads, I'm going to invite the uh, praise team to come. And as you bow your heads, let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you again for all that you've done. Lord, as we pull out the call and we ask those that need to come, come. Father, I know that there are those that are hurting. I know that there are those that are struggling. Father, I know that there is illness and sickness in this congregation, both from recovery from surgery as well as just a sickness in the heart and a sadness that won't go away. Father, we know you're the great physician and you'll heal all of our wounds, whether emotional, mental, or physical. And Father, I also know that in the process of that healing that you will continue to shape us and conform us to the image of your Son. This morning, Father, as we open up the altar, I ask that you draw those that need to be down here to move down. Lord, as you seek to draw them closer to you, Lord, I ask that you'll bring just those that need to be here, that we might be able to come together and move closer to what you've called us to do. And Father, no matter what happens this morning or in the days to come, Allow each and every one of us that are here that love you and called according to your purpose for us to take a message of holiness, the holiness of you and your son, to a world that has no hope and needs it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Lord, we ask this now in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.